Welcome everybody to Schools Like Podcast. I'm Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. Um, hope everybody's hanging in there in this weird kind of, uh, you know, 2020 uh, school year and um, that everybody's doing good. And um, we're really excited tonight for uh, amazing guests. And um, I know that um, we've all been looking forward um, to tonight to to learn and to talk. And um, I think it's gonna be a good conversation that we're all gonna you know, learn from. So I'm gonna pass it over to Rebecca though. Rebecca's gonna tell us um, how we participate. So Rebecca. Hello everyone. Thanks for being with us tonight. This is our last uh, official 1920 school year episode, although you you will likely see us um, <laughs> a couple of times um, before next school year. Um, but you can participate if you're watching us or tuning in live by logging into your YouTube account and you can comment right alongside the live video in the chat box. Be aware that your login information, your name will appear in the chat box. And sometimes we like to, you know, just share comments, positive comments or connections along the video stream so that um, it's not a, a, you know, a perfectly private conversation. So just be aware of that. If you'd like to make a comment um, that you're not sure that you want in the live chat, you can also um, comment on Facebook, either on the school site, um, your school psychologist page or school site podcast page. You can comment under the posts, which are at the top of both pages or in uh, messages. And I, I can um, uh, share your uh, thoughts or experiences and ideas that way. And also, of course, on Twitter, I'll be looking out for the hashtag Psyched Podcast. Um, we have our at Podcast Psyched Twitter handle, and then the, each of us have our own Twitter handles as well. So we hope to hear from you tonight. This is going to be an important conversation, and we'd uh, love to connect. And now I will pass it off to Eric. Okay. I am excited to have an old, 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 I would say long time, she's younger than me, so I can't call her an old friend. Um, a long time dear friend um, who I have known for quite a while and uh, she's just an incredible person. And we wanted to shine a light on the amazing work that she's doing. And um, just, there's so many things going on in this world today. And I think Nelbo's perspective and her heart have so much to offer us um, to hear. So I'm gonna read just a little bit of her bio and about um, the Anna Grace Project as well. And then we will um, begin a, a, a heartfelt and um, wonderful conversation. So Nelva Marquez Green is a clinical fellow of the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy and has worked in private practice, community mental health and academic settings in the US and Canada. Prior to founding the Anna Grace Project, Nelva served as the coordinator for Klingberg Family Therapy Center's Outpatient Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Clinic and was on the adjunct faculty uh, as a faculty member adjunct at Central Connecticut State University. Love Wins is her family slogan that they adopted after Anna's senseless murder. And this movement is one of increasing relational connections. Uh, Nelba maintains an online community of over 100,000 followers and the Anna Grace Project community where people from all over the world learn, share, and grow and witness love through grief. Behind this is the belief that not only does love win, but it also saves lives. The Anna Grace Project has adopted classrooms in New Britain that focus on social and emotional learning, and it has hosted mental health conferences and professional learning opportunities all over the country. Nelva also holds a bachelor's of music from the Hart School of Music, and her husband Jimmy is an incredible professional saxophonist, 
And Nelba also has a Master of Arts in Marriage and Family Therapy, uh, Marriage and Family Therapy from St. Joseph's College. And she was a founding member of the CTAMFT Diversity Committee. I also wanna say, um, Nelba has been selected as one of the 100 Women of Color and as a YWCA Women's Leadership Award recipient. She's featured in the 2019 release, The Book of Gutsy Women by Hillary Rodham and Chelsea Clinton, and in People Magazine's October 2019 issue as one of 10 Women Changing the World. She's testified and advocated at the state and federal levels on many different mental health initiatives and hosted TED Talks and is a sought after speaker nationally. Also the Anna Grace Project, um, as I mentioned, Love Wins is the slogan, uh, and this has been uh, Nelba's work and the project is dedicated to promoting love, community and connection for every child and family through three lead initiatives, partner schools, professional development and music and arts. And lastly, I'm gonna borrow from an introduction that I heard Nelba give to Bruce Perry so I found it so charming and funny, <laughs> but as lovers of Harry Potter, um, I find this to be true that my friend Nelba also has um, enough courage of a Gryffindor, the loyalty of a Hufflepuff, the wisdom of a Ravenclaw, and just enough Slytherin to keep this interesting. So welcome Nelba, we are so glad that you're here. <laughs> I can't believe you remembered that. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I'm a bit of a Harry Potter nerd and it, it struck me so funny. I, I wrote it down when you said it, because I know. <laughs> yeah. So thank you, you for having me. Yeah, we're just, it's so important. Um, and I think the work that you're doing is so important and we want to shine a light on that. Um, and, and, you know, I think seeing you um, with Bruce Perry last year um, really brought about a lot of eye-opening work for me in terms of understanding ACEs a little better and understanding trauma. Um, I don't know if that's a good place for us to start um, the work that you're doing through the Anna Grace Project. So I think I want to pull it back even further and just head into this slowly and, and start by first talking about my experience with school psychologists. Um, so for some time uh, we were living in Canada and the structure there is a bit different. But when we returned to Connecticut, one of the things that was uh, apparent was that um, we needed to put on a, on a 504 for a uh, heart um, kind of issue that she had. And even though I had, a, you know, my husband has a bunch of degrees, I have a bunch of degrees, the idea of putting a child in a new system uh, learning this like American school system uh, now that my kids are in elementary school and being spoken to about a 504 plan was incredibly daunting, mm -hmm. even though you know it was explained to me in my primary language, even though I didn't feel like uh, people were being disrespectful, despite all of the advantages and privilege that I had. When I received that phone call from the school psychologist, it was absolutely daunting. Um, and I still remember Mary Sherlock uh, talking me off the ledge because I'm like, what do you mean she needs a 504? She's perfectly fine. And Mary slowly and gently married her uh, kind of breath of knowledge about the system with this way of explaining 
um, why my child needed this in order to um, just have a, a safer and better school year. And it wasn't just for her. It was so that the school could be prepared in case uh, her heart condition acted up, you know, and uh, during, during the school day. So I wanted to start there because the work that you do is so incredibly important in translating um, important information and opportunity to parents of all kinds. And again, even though I had all of this information in my head and all these degrees and I lived in the same community and I was in English and I understand English, it was still really hard. So I want to give you guys a lot of credit uh, for uh, what you do in schools and also for the information that you share on your uh, websites and social media, because I think it helps both parents understand and also providers hear this side. Um, and as for someone who's been on both sides, it's really hard. Thank you. We appreciate that. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? Even though um, we have degrees and you have the mental health background and um, uh, Jimmy has his uh, doctoral degree now, you know, it's just amazing. And yet right in the midst of working with their own kids and the schools, um, these processes are daunting. So yeah, I appreciate that. And, and it's important for us to remember that this is about connections. You know, this is about making sure we're doing the right thing. And that's a good segue into that conversation, um, uh, the conference with Bruce, and we're talking about trauma, and we're talking about ACEs. There's absolutely no way, no matter how what expertise and information we have, we're going to convince a family to trust us enough to take our recommendations if we don't build that connection as a foundational principle. So I share that story with you, just how you know. Um, and, and all she was saying to me was, we have to put a 504 plan in for a, 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 a heart condition. Um, when we're talking to parents about things that are even, that feel even more daunting to them, um, and sometimes trauma and ACEs and all of that stuff, right? Are you gonna, our parents have so many concerns. Are you gonna call the police on me? Are you gonna call the Department of Children and Families? Are you going to tell someone that this thing is happening in my home or in my community that my child has experienced? Um, the overriding feeling, and there really is no rationale for this, but I, that I remember I felt when the school psychologist called me was shame. What had I done that I needed this thing that we couldn't handle it at home? And very often when I talk to parents, that's the same thing I hear. I hear a sense of shame and the fear and the sometimes kind of antagonistic relationships that are started stem from that shame stem from that there's very little trust or, you know, I don't want anybody to know. And um, that's where we need to start. It has to start with trusting relationships. Yeah, that, that's so beautiful. And I, I always think of this partnership as with so much respect for parents as experts on their children. You know, I would never pretend to know more about someone else's child than they do. And I think, you know, when we can lead with that, um, let's kind of put our heads together and, and collaborate on, on what can be the most supportive um, 
steps for your child. I think that's so powerful and so beautiful and so fulfilling on, on, um, on our end as well. I think that's a really yeah good reminder to us as school psychologists because sometimes we're so we're, we have to run from meeting to meeting and um, you know it's really good to to slow ourselves down sometimes and realize that um, because we might have ten meetings in a day kind of back to back that um, you know this is this is something that parents remember and this is something that kind of sets the groundwork for that relationship. And so we have to sometimes slow it down and make sure um, that, you know, though it might be the 10th meeting for us and we might not, um, we might be kind of running around that, you know, that that's comforting to hear that, that you as a parent kept that with you, that, 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 that was helpful to you. Um, and so I hope that all of us moving forward um, have had those experiences and are able to do that for, for parents instead of, you know, sometimes we do hear horror stories about the school psychologist said this in 20 years from now, you know, a parent is still upset and holds that and remembers exactly what was said. And um, so that's a good reminder. I remember sitting in on a PPT one time and I, I still remember this story and it, it it makes me giggle a little bit because we were able to resolve it, but it pains my heart mostly. And I'm sitting in this PPT and it's a family, um, English is not their, their first language and they're very unfamiliar with this system. And the parents of, of an elementary school child have been informed, uh, older elementary school child, maybe younger middle, that um, their child has um, expressed some suicidal ideation. And uh, we're in this PPT and the mom looks at her daughter and says, so you got a hundred on your depression test or something like that. You know, she's just, she was just so unfamiliar with the process that for her, what the school psychologist and what we were saying on the other side of the table is you actually got a hundred on your depression. That's how she understood it. So sometimes it's about finding the common language that parents understand. It's about unfortunately meeting with them and having a team that's proactive. Too often our parents are meeting us right when there's a problem, when their problem has been identified and we get to deliver this news and it, it's just so hard. So again, having those relationships and letting people know ahead of time, this is your support team. It includes a school psychologist, it includes a principal, it includes a social worker, it includes a teacher, and we're all here to help you, um, is, is I think had that mom had that. And we were able to sit down with her and say, no, 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 here's here's another way to look at it. Um, but it's it can be quite difficult. Yeah, in a, in a recent um, um, interview that you had uh, a live stream on the Anna Grace Project where you were talking with Dr. Bruce Perry, you said something that has been lodged in my heart and brain for, for the whole time since I've heard it, but you said um, one thing that was always very important to you to teach your children was that the two most important and I think bravest questions mm -hmm. or things that they could say were one, I need help. And two, how can I help? And uh, that is just so powerful. I haven't forgotten it since. And I so agree. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with Dr. Perry or um, how you got um, into that work? Sure. So um, after everything happened, I actually worked with um, 
in a in a collaborative team, uh, interdisciplinary team at Klingberg, and that included a psychologist, a psychiatrist, um, you know, some social workers, MFTs, and we were all there. And it was actually the psychiatrist who thought to mail me a copy of the boy who was raised as a dog at home, and it came with a little note, and it said, "I know you're not going to read one grief book, but remember." that it's all about relationships and and um, I'm thinking of you. And that was the sticky note on the book. And I devoured that book on a plane. Uh, we were going somewhere in January, just maybe 30 days after the shooting. And I devoured the book on a plane. And I said, you know, I'm going to find this guy. And Bruce Perry is very difficult to find, <laughs> incredibly difficult to find. But I found him. And um, I remember calling and um, getting like someone and I'm like, hey, you know, my daughter was just killed and I've got this beautiful son at home who survived and um, I want to make, we have to get this right. Um, can you just have Bruce give me a call back? I'm going to leave my number. And she goes, you know, and he, it, it, um, you know, Bruce is a, a very special one, one of those human beings that, um, you, you don't encounter very often in this life. And um, he has been a, a friend, a, a faithful, loving friend um, since that day in January that he actually called back um, up until, um, you know, up until now. And he has something, if you're a school psychologist and you're out there listening and you're interested in healing communities, he has um, an event every two years in Banff uh, um, in Canada and it's a symposium of healers from around the world. Um, and he talks about the neurosequential model. He's very invested in the neurosequential model. It's all his research are based, is based on the neurosequential model. However, you don't have to be a practitioner of neurosequential model to, to participate in, in this um, experience. And I would say if you are, it was supposed to happen this year. It was actually supposed to, actually supposed to happen, you know, two weeks ago. But if you can get to Banff, and it was rescheduled for 2021 due to the, you know, due to COVID, if you can get to Banff, you will be in an environment of like-minded professionals interested in healing both themselves and this world, and where relationships are the underpinning um, to healing. So I would highly recommend um, that experience. I also recommend you tack on a day before or after the conference just to be in the nature, the hot springs, the mountains of, of, of Banff, because another thing we don't do really well is self-care. Like we are in our buildings, we are doing our testing, we are trying to get everything done, um, and we are, we, we, we're not really well balanced. So finding those professional development um, outlets that allow us to get um, both the learning and um, some healing for ourselves, and just that being in relationship with all these people from around the world who are just like you is is just you feel like i mean for me i'm a hufflepuff i feel like well i'm in i'm in the hufflepuff house you know it's it's just great um so yeah i would recommend uh bamf and looking up the child trauma academy uh for anyone listening thank you i i think as school psychologists um I'm trying to remember when I, I did a talk on behavior supports at one of our conferences, um, maybe sh Chicago in 2018. And it was on building capacity for behavior supports. And 
I asked, you know, pulled the the room how many people had heard of the ACE study and the room, I would think as school psychologists, the, every hand in the room should have been up and they weren't. And so I think, you know, just reminding us to continue connecting at that level with our families, with our um, our students and understanding that um, uh, averse childhood experiences have such a huge impact on, um, on our development, on who we are, how we relate. And I don't know if you remember from the conference, um, we spent a bit of time talking about ACEs, but mostly we spent a bit of time, um, a much longer period of time talking about how ACEs doesn't encap encapsulate relationships and the important role of relationships as a buffer to trauma. So we don't want families uh, feeling discouraged if they actually tick off, you know, a, a ton of boxes on the A scale. It's not necessarily, yes, it can be a predictor of likelihood of certain things like we know, you know, hypertension and, you know, all kinds of things. But it doesn't take into uh, um, into consideration relationships. So I can't say that enough that um, that that's the beauty, I think, of, of this particular conference. We're not just bogged down in the, okay, if you get a, you know, because again, like I said at the conference, I was very open. I'm a nine, um, but I'm a nine with, I always say I'm a nine with wings because of the relationships in my life as a young person and as an adult, um, that have helped to buffer some of that. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. And, and that piece of that, I, th I think we're starting to talk more about in school psychology is resilience and how do we, um, come out of that experience with some sort of normalcy, you know, it's not normal, but it's different, but getting back on track and, um, at whatever way possible. And, and that's that's it. That um, you know, we talk about in schools one one positive relationship with a teacher can make a difference in a you know turn a child's life around, and that's so crucial. In regards to um, relationships, do you have any thoughts on what we're going through now as far as COVID and returning to school and social distancing and wearing face masks potentially in schools? Do you do you see that as having um, a negative impact on forming relationships and, ha and, and, and mitigating some of the impact of what people are going through with the COVID crisis? I'm gonna pull that back a little bit too. My biggest concern right now is teacher safety, school personnel safety. Um, we're having conversations about sending school staff back. Um, many, school, uh, many schools who have uh, teaching and um, staff populations above um, the age of 55 and 60 so that are, that, that are higher risk. And I see parallels here between COVID and what we did after Newtown. What we did after Newtown is we decided, you know what, the kids deserve normal. So send those teachers back, ready or not. I would implore decision makers to really follow health guidelines, right? The health and well-being of our school staff has to proceed the health and well-being of our kids. We can't say we got to send the kids back because we need them to be resilient. We need them to know grit. Well, guess what? If you're sending school kids back to a building with scared school staff who are feeling unsafe, it's not going to work. 
So my biggest concern with COVID and the return in the fall, and I get that there are real issues. There are real issues with parents who need schools um, uh, because they have to work. I, I, I understand that it is complex. And also I deeply am concerned for the health and well-being of school staff, their own emotional state. Um, I don't think we can be resilient or, or teach grit or, or teach any of those things if we're feeling unsafe about our return. I also see two different Connecticut's. I see private schools having one one conversation where my, you know, the school where my child attends um, is like, please prepare for an online fall. And yet I see other districts and they're like, yeah, well, we're, we're going to go back in September. So I think it's really, really important that we talk about inequity. I think it's really important that we, um, you know, understand that our school staff has to be taken care of before we can expect them to take care of um, the kids. Yeah, that whole, um, you know, we've used the analogy a little bit in some of our discussions about re-entry, about um, putting on our own oxygen mask, you know, before we can address the child's needs in that respect. Um, I do think about that. And I, I think, um, Rebecca and I talked about this recently. Um, I'm not sure we're measuring teachers' anxiety level and teachers' uh, reluctance to return and how I, I think we're going to need to. Because we built the narrative of a hero teacher, you know, the mm -hmm. hero teacher who will die for their child if there's a shooting and protect the whole classroom, the hero teacher who doesn't need much and will spend her whole uh, paycheck or his whole paycheck on, on their classroom. You know what? I'm so tired of that narrative. So true. And I think the inequity point is, is so important because like you, like you mentioned, private schools and schools with, um, with bigger budgets perhaps are able to set aside the time and the money to bring in teachers first and take care of their needs. And I, I agree with you that that is so important, but when it feels like a luxury, uh, something's wrong because it, I, I think that it's, it is not a luxury. And if the adults are not okay, how are we going to have the kids be okay coming back to school? And the adults are um, really vulnerable in this situation in particular. Um, so there's so much to think about when it comes to that. Even if class sizes are small, what about like music teachers that are seeing multiple small groups or, you know, and right now I think also upon re-entry, we really have to think about the value and importance of our extracurriculars, music, art, PE. Right? I almost think that those are gonna be the most important <laughs> um, classes that kids can re-engage in. But we've got to figure out how to how to make those teachers um, feel okay, and logistically, how are they going to not have four sets of ten different kids all day, increasing their exposure risks? And when you and when you're saying that, the first thing that pops in in my head is in urban districts. What's the first thing we cut? Music, art, extracurriculars. So we are, we already have an, a, an, a Connecticut that is, un, well, you know what, I, I, I can't say unlike anything I've ever seen because I have not lived in another state, right? 
but I have worked in Hartford and I've worked in Greenwich and, you know, I had kids in Newtown and now I have, so I know that already we had a problem before that was very clear and add COVID and we need to have some serious discussion. Yeah, I, I think um, our practitioners, I think it, you know, our other states probably mirror some of this, but I do think we have some huge gaps in Connecticut, um, especially. Um, and I, I'm thinking too about um, our black and brown uh, educators, not just our children, but you know, the trauma that people are seeing and feeling right now due to the racism that you know we're we're all seeing and the inequities that we're um, that are becoming sort of more revealed um, through COVID and through actions that we're seeing in in our society. Uh, I don't even know how you know if a teacher has already felt um, that they're having trouble in their district because of those things. How comfortable are they going to be going back and being faced with the same? microaggressions, the same um, issues, and then our children who are seeing and experiencing uh, this stuff. There are a lot, so many layers that I think we have to, um, are gonna have to get to as we re-enter or consider re-entering. It has been encouraging to see districts um, make um, statements, especially around the uh, brutal murder of um, George Floyd. Um, and in this season um, to affirm uh, Black Lives Matter. And also if there is no substantive plan, um, it's, it's going to be different when we return. You know, um, you know, my son is 15, so maybe he's a little older than, than some of the little, but he gets all the news on his, there, there's no escaping now, the news of now and the urgency of now. So we have already an inequitable system, you know, maybe teachers, you know, nervous to return uh, with anxiety to return due to COVID and additionally a climate that has changed. And many of our school staff can fully embrace the urgency of now and understand, but we need to be honest and tell the truth that some of our school staff isn't there yet. And if you're not there yet and you're returning to school and you're working with black and brown kids, what does that mean now? Um, so we have a lot of things to think about for this fall and for now. Yeah, a lot of work to do. For sure. Yeah, and as a school psychologist, you know, we have an understanding of, we have a lot of, I think, self, we have knowledge of self-care and uh, strategies and things like that. But I, for sure, uh, personally, as a mom and as a school employee, I, I'm, I'm worried about how, what, what the school year looks like. And so I'm kind of like everyone else, kind of looking at all the news and it's, it's overwhelming, but you also want to be informed. And so, yeah, I think about families um, that have a lot more going on than I do and a lot less of a skill set than what I have through my education and my experiences. And um, it's, it's a lot, it's upsetting to think about and it's, we're, it's a challenge. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I mean, In part that's how and why we started the work on the Honor Grace Project, right? We knew that living in Newtown, um, 
how do I say this? We knew that living in Newtown, the response and the resources that became available to us after the shooting were going to be more than any kid in Hartford or New Britain or Waterbury or New Haven was ever going to get, despite having had a similar loss, right? So when I started, you know, the Honor Grace Project, it was in part knowing that reality, having been, you know, Jimmy's from Bloomfield, I'm from Hartford slash New Britain. So we were those kids who had, you know, needs over there who were never met. And listen, I'm very grateful for the help and support we got, but I always talk about that there's tons of kids out there and tons of families who go through, you know, loss of a parent, loss of a, a sibling, loss of a child from, from gun violence and don't receive um, the same type of support. So I think we're starting to increase the levels of those conversations in our communities. I think we're uh, also uh, increasing our levels of community partnerships, school community partnerships with mental health organizations, with after school clubs. I think we are starting to say there is no way we're going to survive this alone. So where are the community groups and services that we can partner with for our kids, for our school culture? I think we're starting to normalize um, um, self-care of, of teachers, right? So I've seen some schools do some really beautiful things like have uh, a stress management room. Just We know the, the uh, premium of space in schools, right? So when I see a school has a dedicated space where a teacher can go and, and there's uh, attention paid to lighting and seating and um, there's aroma, you know, there's like a little thing with the with the aromatherapy that it's telling me that we're becoming more aware. And that's really important. Yes, I, I think that's it's such an important point that we can't do this alone as a, you know, in, like internal school people that um, uh, relying on our community partners and especially um, LMFTs and licensed clinical social workers who are um, brought up in a training that thinks about systems, right? And we, we certainly think about systems change as school psychologists as well, but a lot of times we're thinking about individual students and, you know, um, we just, I think, as you also said, the urgency of the situation is we need all caring hands on deck right now. Um, and I'm, I'm also wondering about what you think about um, about um, sort of in what we, we often say, what gets measured matters, right? And so, and we focus often on measurement of how are kids doing? What are their stress levels? What are, what, you know, how, how are they feeling? How anxious, how, how sad, how, how are they doing in terms of academic achievement and all that? But in schools, a, a lot of schools that I know of, don't measure how the adults are doing very regularly. And I, I wonder what you think about that in the return to school. Um, it's one thing that I'm sort of pushing for in my in my um, work is let's find out, let's hear from teachers, let's measure. How are they feeling? Are they stressed? Are they anxious? What's the burnout like? Do they feel connected? Do they feel capable, effective as teachers? One of the considerations with that, because I saw that play out in Newtown, is when you're being measured, by the same organization or force or group of people who do your evaluation and who are going to offer you tenure or not, or who are going to decide if you stay in this classroom or this building or, or that, it can be very scary for teachers. Um, it can be very, very scary for school staff 
when you say the place where you work is wanting your honest feedback on how you're really doing. Um, so there has to be a certain trust level or a certain um, uh, a good faith effort that what they share is somehow protected. One of the things I saw a school district try to implement is in the um, teacher evaluation, um, put in a dimension of self-care. Obviously, they can't mandate, but they could strongly encourage and then offer, have different offerings uh, during the year. So I think you have to be really careful with um, that because what I've seen sometimes if that trust level isn't there, that no one will participate because there's so much fear. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Definitely. I, I think there needs to be anonymity and uh you know, demographics that we can say, you know, like this grade is, has, feels less, um, you know, confident about the curriculum than this grade, but, but definitely that protective anonymity. And then again, I, I think couldn't an outside agency or research um, group provide that kind of assessment measure for the school so that it isn't, you know, the school psychologist or ad administration. Yeah. And one more point I wanted to go back to with community organization partnership is that I want to make sure that people understand. I know evidence based is the flavor of the month, everything. But there are a lot of groups in your community who are doing amazing work who are never going to get an evidence based label because it takes a million dollars or more to receive an evidence based label. So go outside the box. Let's not not be the group that waits for the latest flavor of the month model that everybody wants and it's evidence-based so and it's like it's evidence-based it has to be good well you know it's one size fits all as nothing is one size fits all and there's probably a group of folks one of the most um amazing things i ever saw was the first time i went to see nadine burke in 2013 or 2014 in uh california san francisco where she had her clinic and one of the things they had done was trained local grandmas on ACEs. And then those local grandmas became the ACEs expert and they went around telling you what, you want the community to know something, tell the local grandma because they were telling everybody about ACEs. And I got to meet the grandmother advisory board that they had put together and it blew my mind. Another thing they had was um, these pediatric visits that had local community folks in 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 the visit so if in your first of all she was the first one to do the thing where she gave the aces at the at the regular screening right the leg the regular pediatric well visit so if you ticked off a certain number maybe it was six or more or seven or more there was a person that came in and said hey we noticed you had a seven or more on here and if you you know kind of allow us we'd like to go visit you at your house i can play xbox with your kid i can um, you know, go for a trip to do ice cream. I can do whatever. And that helped so much, not just in the transfer of information to the family on what ACEs were, what we needed to do, but also build the trust with the clinic, with the advisory board, with the doctors, because then it was part of the community. Um, so I want to, I wanted to do about evidence base. Then I wanted to talk about measurement giftedness and discipline. One of the things that really you see is 
in your role and, and, and how we measure giftedness is let's talk about race, right? It's not just that we're disciplining black and brown kids more. We're missing them in the evaluation of giftedness. And that's a huge issue that I wish um, more school psychologists would, would take on. We're not just punitively punishing. We are completely disallowing for the beauty of, of the uniqueness and giftedness that these little brains uh, have. And um, that makes me really sad. It's also happening, like Eric, I know you're in Meriden. And, you know, Rebecca, you're in New Canaan, two totally different communities. The same behavior in Connecticut and Meriden and New, and New Canaan have the chance to be treated so much differently. So can someone talk to me about how we're going to get rid of punitive punishment for kids' behavior that just needs help? Amen. <laughs> restorative, right? We need to move to restorative practices as we approach discipline. Um, and we need to move. We do talk about some of this stuff in, in school psych circles um, that we are, um, yes, as Dr. McClure is saying, underrepresenting. We, we're excluding kids. You know, some of these practices, um, testing, forgiveness, those kinds of things have become exclusionary or remained exclusionary, perhaps. Um, and they're not excluding based on gifts, they're excluding based on, it, it becomes segregational. Um, and You're excluding based on zip code. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the same, you're absolutely right. The discipline piece, um, you know, we talk about this stuff a lot we talk about, um, the achievement gap. We talk, we've been talking about that since I moved here 25 years ago. Um, but we need to see policy changes that lead to practice changes. We need to see policy changes. We also policy changes. We also need to examine our own biases, right? We also need to be really having a conversation with our helper community about our own implicit biases. Um, because if I think that, um, I remember talking on my Facebook page about um, the high levels of maternal uh, mortality rates among black women um, and a teacher was basically like, I don't believe this. You know, I, I, you know, we're all one race, the human race. And um, so, so, and, you know, I tried to get into a conversation with her and basically she's one of these teachers that if you wear a belt and you do the right things, good things will happen to you. So I'm unwilling to look at the statistics that are telling me that we have implicit bias, that, and um, that's problematic. That is incredibly problematic. So we need to change policy. We also need to change our hearts and be open to and humble enough to say, I may have implicit bias. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping. And my implicit bias may be keeping a child from being gifted, maybe right. keeping a child from being an AP, maybe keep and maybe uh, dissuading. So I have three friends with doctoral degrees from Hartford Public High School. Well, two friends with doctoral degrees and one on her way. And do you know that all three of them were discouraged from applying to college? And if you talk to Bruce Perry, Bruce Perry was he'll tell you he said I was the biggest knucklehead in high school all throughout I was 
like the craziest kid. And I too was discouraged from applying to college. We've got a lot of power as professionals mm -hmm. and we need, need to make sure to wield that with, with care and responsibility. That's really well said. I'm just thinking, let that sink in for a minute with care and responsibility. Yeah. Um, and speaking of being a knucklehead, I was also a knucklehead in high school and I know you have a strong uh, work connection to CCSU, which is my alma mater. Um, oh, so I just you're an alumna? <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so can you I, tell us a little bit about that, the, the, the trainings that you hold through Central Connecticut State University? And is that, that is sometimes with Bruce Perry as well, correct? So yes, it is. And I'm very, very fortunate. Um, so before everything happened, um, I was actually adjunct at CCSU um, and then at Klingberg. So somehow, you know, it was, there was made a way for us to partner more formally with CCSU and the Honor Grace Project. And it was at the same time, um, it was at the same time that Central Connecticut State University was trying to pass um, uh, an application for a center for social and emotional learning on campus. So we actually have a center, it's not a physical building, but it's a, a concept, it's a center for social and emotional learning and uh, it's run by uh, the school and it's in this uh, school of education and professional studies and what that means is we get to do really fun and relational relationship-based work um, in reminding people that all kids matter and are important and here's how we can show up for them and um, how we can prepare better professionals so the Honor Grace Project gets to partner with the center and we host um, Monday weekly um, podcasts also or Facebook lives and we have conferences and we bring in outside guests. We had Bruce Perry the first year and we were going to have um, Mark, Mark Brackett from Yale, the Center for um, uh, Emotional Intelligence down there. We were going to have him. He's great. We were going to have him do his thing and and looking for other opportunities to to have professionals and um we do other community-based things we host community drives um we host an event in april yearly which connects local elementary school kids brings them on the campus and uh connects them with our student athletes and reminds them to finish the race. We actually finished the day on the track with the athletes and the elementary school students run the track with our student athletes. And it's really neat because our student athletes are incredibly diverse, but I promise you that almost every one of them has been a big sibling because these kids come and it matters not. We could have the best professor in the world and it doesn't matter. Kids see themselves in these athletes and the athletes talk about, you know, being a good citizens in the classroom and in their sport and how, you know, scholarships and, and it's just an amazing, um, and we weren't able to have it this year due to COVID, but it's, it's one of the highlights. I also have an endowed scholarship at Central, um, Neana Grace and Isaiah James Marquez Green, um, endowed scholarship for a New Britain High School student 
who has exemplified love winning through adversity. And um, our first um, recipient, Jamina Walker, she's actually a double major in business and accounting, and she takes Chinese for fun. Um, she um, She's going to graduate in December. So, you know, I'm just grateful and humbled by uh, the different opportunities. We don't have to, no one has to do all the work, but everybody has to do some of the work. And um, that's what we've got. We've got an opportunity to do some of the work. Can I just give a shout out to what you're doing? Just a uh, amen. So people really hear <laughs> as an outside observer coming onto Central's campus last year um, and going to this workshop and the embedded social and emotional learning, the embedded respect for culture, the, the culture of learning, the culture of caring throughout the campus was obvious. Um, it was just amazing. And, and just to, to be able to walk around the campus and see um, plaques to um, famous black scholars, um, the flags that you have on the lamppost, like it was just really amazing to see that and then to see and hear how professors are embedding um, equity and social emotional learning into um, education classes, literature classes, not only for the college students, but hearing how their teacher training program is working to get these back into the classroom for teachers. I was blown away. I really was. Um, I just can't even say enough about it. It was, it was impressive to say the least. And hopefully no, we're not, we're not, not um, you know, we don't get everything right, but we have a lot of willing hearts and a lot of willing brains and people who just get it and, and understand and recognize the, the need to do more. So it's a great place to be. And Rachel, you've been really quiet. Am I talking too much? No, not at all. I, I probably I'm, am, though. <laughs> um, I, I think that, you know, what you're doing is amazing. And I think that your strength and your modeling of, this, of your strength um, just gives people hope. And I think that's what we need, you know, um, that because there's, there's a lot of work to be done in the world. And um, so we need to keep doing that work. And... Um, so you're you're doing that. You're doing the good work, and you're modeling how to how to do it. And um, I think you're making a lot of. I, I'm just in awe of you. So <laughs> thank um, you. Well, thank you. And a word on that. On word on a word on grit and resilience, because I get a lot of emails from people saying, "Could you teach my, you know, mother-in-law who lost her, you know, whatever? Could you teach my sister?" Is people can't be gritty and resilient without resources. So we need to make sure we're embedding those resources and community. I, I've been blessed. I have a lot of resources and my resources are my community, my faith, my church, my um, the, the women in my life who, who make sure I get out of bed and um, do what I need to do. So we need to make sure um, that our communities have these resources um, as well. And, and that's why we keep going. So... Um, so I think we're looking for if anybody has last minute questions or comments, we'd love to um, kind of 
hear from you guys. Um, I know that this is the last podcast of um, kind of the school year, but we are in talks with, um, we had a lot of questions, I guess, that came out when we talked about cognitive evaluations um, in the past. So we're looking to get maybe in light of COVID things to get um, a panel going of some of our experts on that. So that'll be really great. But a lot of great positive um, comments. I know that everybody um, is just kind of hanging on everything that you said. And again, um, just thank you for everything. Well, I'm not going to be as sexy as cognitive uh, evaluation. However, I want to tell you that I have a kid who survived a school shooting and he's going to be 16 in um, a week and a few days. And my son, um, I'm going to do a little brag for a minute. And many of the siblings are actually doing incredibly well. Um, incredibly well in many different dimensions, not just school, not just academics, but well, as well as it can be. And I'm not minimizing the grief. The grief is always there. However, one of the things that the school did right was they assigned a home school liaison for all of us with surviving children. And that home school liaison was in charge of managing any issues of information flow, of uh, different uh, anything, right? And that was really positive. I want to remind anyone out there who's working with a family where you see no, no hope that the more you offer a sense of connection, there is hope and there can be hope. I think people thought there would be very little hope for a lot of those kids, my my son included, after everything happened. And he's an amazing student. He got a scholarship to boarding school um, and he is a joyful, happy, funny Gryffindor. So. So um, there is hope for our children, even if they have high ACEs or traumatic uh, experience. We just need to make sure that their parent, that their parents and the adults around them, are equipped with the tools to care for them and have enough care for themselves. So. I know we're we're running short on time, but I, so much of what you said reminded me of some of the things that when we talked last summer, um, when you were speaking at APA. And you use that amazing analogy of getting big in the net. And um, and just to me, you were speaking about connecting with our communities, the sphere of influence and making those connections. Um, I don't know if you can summarize any of that in just a, a minute or two, but it spoke to me so, um, oh. so well. And being brave, right? So I talked mm -hmm. about Isaiah when he is, um, so my son's a goalie in hockey. And when sometimes there's something called a breakaway where the other team, you know, everyone's coming at you because there's a loose puck and the only thing standing between all those people and the net and then making a, a, a goal is you. And if it were me, right, my instinct would be to stay close to the net and cover it with my arms. And I never see Isaiah do that. The more skilled he got, he would get further out in the net away from the goal. And when I asked him why he did that, he said, mom, because you have to get big in front of your opponent, right? So one of the things I noticed your professional organization does it is get big, right? Your Arthur, Arthur Evans, your, your um, head now, the way I've seen him take on uh, gun violence and um, different issues, it's, it's just been really um, wonderful to see uh, some leadership in that area. It was Alicia Abersold who... Uh, 
uh, invited me to speak at the APA and we need to get big. Um, we are the only thing often between uh, uh, doing right for a family and, and not doing right for a family. So you get big in that net. Thank you. That was Dr. Proctor, by the way. You, you have uh, an array of school psych rock stars in the chat column um, commenting. So Dr. Proctor I just- I think she says that's scary to watch as a goalie mom. So she must be a goalie mom too. Yes, it's scary to see as a goalie mom. Oh my goodness, it's the worst. But here he is, he wants to play hockey. I'm like, Isaiah, could you do something more culturally relevant, please? Like there's baseball in our family. Your father played basketball. He's like, no, I wanna play ice hockey. So I'll be the only Puerto Rican mom at ice hockey. Fine, kid. I'm growing. I'm growing. <laughs> I love it. Um, yes, I'm sure you'll be big in the stands. <laughs> big in the stands. That's right. <laughs> I'm sure, Rebecca, that you can kind of, um, you know, have some of those things. I know your kids uh, play football and, you know, Rebecca often is just, you know. <laughs> And I, I watch, I vary from watching like this to binoculars, watching their expression. <laughs> right. Okay. Hey guys, I just wanted to thank you for having me on and thank you for the work you do. I know it's a lot of work to hold a Facebook page and do that kind of, and you can kind of never make anyone happy. Don't forget, that's not your job. Your job is to get big in the net and give that good information out so that we can digest it in, in good doses, which you, which you always do. Thank you for the opportunity to share with you tonight. Thank you so Thank much, you. Alba. Thank so you. much. Anagraceproject.org uh, is the website if people need more information. Yeah. So, and they can follow yeah. us on Facebook. Um, we put a lot of information there. Yes. And I, I put some of the links that you mentioned in the chat. I'll also put them on the Facebook pages and on Twitter. So thank you, everybody out there for tuning in. And thank you so much, Nelva. This, this is going to be another... Uh, conversation that I hear that's going to stay with me for a very long time. So I really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you everyone. Bye -bye. Thank you, Bye -bye.